Welcome to the September episode of the Microbiology Lab Pod. My name is Johan Bengtsson-Palme and I am an assistant professor at the Department of Infectious Diseases at the University of Gothenburg. Today is the 23rd of September and the crispiness of fall is in the air here in Gothenburg. On today's pod we will focus on antibiotic resistance, in particular in Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and we will look at how antibiotics interact with antivirulence compounds and biofilm formation. We will also take a look at what happens with resistance determinants when bacteria die. But first, we will continue our series on how to discover novel antibiotic resistance genes with our special guest Fanny Berglund. And here with me to, to discuss today are Anna Abramova, who is a postdoc in the Embark project that works with monitoring of antib- uh, antibiotic resistance in the environment. Hello, Anna. How are you doing? Hello, Johan. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, too. How is, how is the, the, the fall coming up for you? I really enjoy it. Uh, I think it's a very beautiful time of the year. It is nice, especially a day like this when you, when you get the sun as well. I'm also joined by Mabuba Lubna Akter, who is a master student who works with genes contributing to invasion ability in Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Hi, Mabuba. Hello, Johan. How are you? I'm good. And you? Yeah, fine. Very nice. I'm looking forward for, to the paper you're going to present later today. Yeah, I'm also excited to present this. Yeah. Very nice. We are also joined by Emil Burman, who is an assistant researcher in the lab and who studies disturbances and invasion in microbial communities. Hi, Emil. Hello, Johan. All good on your side? I have no complaints. I'm very happy. How are you? That's good. So furthermore, Sebastian Wettersten, who is a master student in the lab working with the Metaxa 2 software, is also joining us today. Hello, Sebastian. All good? Yes, it's all good. It's a nice day. Yeah, very nice. And finally, among the lab personnel today, we have Marcus Venner, who is a new master student who does his first podcast today. Um, you are a master student in the lab since a couple of weeks, and you work with antibiotic resistance development in soil. And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself, Marcus. Yes. Hello, everyone. Uh, so I am doing a master project, uh, a bioinformatics master project in this particular lab I was doing, I actually finished my master's in molecular biology uh, this spring, but I realized that I prefer to sit at the computer than being in the lab pipetting. So I'm here to learn more about antibiotic resistance uh, and bioinformatics in general, so I can move my career path from molecular biology to um, bioinformatics, hopefully within the sort of area of antibiotic resistance development. Very nice, Marcus. We are very happy to have you in the lab. So, And you've already, in the, the past couple of weeks since we recorded the, the last pod, I think you've been uh, achieving uh, tremendously good results. So that's very nice to see. We are also joined today by a special guest, uh, Fanny Berglund, who is a colleague of mine from the Joachim Larsson lab. Uh, and you are working with discovering novel antibiotic resistance genes, um, among other things. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, Fanny. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, so I have a background in, um, well, firstly, in engineering physics. And then I realized that I like to work with uh, biological data. And that led me on to doing a PhD in bioinformatics at Chalmers, where I uh, mostly focused on just that topic to discover new antibiotic resistance genes. And currently, I'm doing a postdoc at Joachim Larsson's uh, lab, where I also work with uh, antibiotic resistance genes, uh, but solely as a bioinformatician. 
Yeah, and we also we shared the same PhD supervisor, but I had him as my co-supervisor, and you had him as your main supervisor, yeah. Eric Christiansson uh, at Chalmers University of Technology. Exactly. Who I think actually has been really influential in both of our career paths. Definitely in mine. Uh, I should also note that uh, Havila is out today, uh, so she will not be joining us for the pod today, uh, but she will come back on future pods. First up, we have an interview with Fanny Bailund, which will continue our series on identifying novel antibiotic resistance genes. So we've been talking with uh, Marlies Böhm earlier in the spring, uh, about a variant of functional metagenomics to discover new resistance genes. And before that, we also had a little bit of a discussion on isolating novel bacteria and identifying resistance determinants in them. Um, so thanks for joining the pod, Fanny. Thank you for having me. It's, it's our pleasure. Uh, so you have a slew of papers on predicting novel, resi- novel antibiotic resistance genes from uh, DNA sequencing data. Um, so there's there's one paper where you redefine the phylogeny of the uh, metallobetalactamases. Um, you have one methods paper where you talk about your your methods that came out in Microbiome last year. Um, I've been involved in one of your papers as well, the one where we dig up seventy six novel metallobetalactamase variants uh, from different large scale sequencing sets, uh, which was also published uh, in Microbiome two years ago, I think. Um, and there's also a similar paper on fluoroquinolone resistance genes. So maybe just to get us all on the same page here, um, could you describe your approach that you've been working with in these papers, like in a very generalized manner? We can dive into the bioinformatics details of this later, but if you look at it as, in a, as a very much of an overview, how do you do to discover new resistance genes in sequence data? Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So I'm a bioinformatician. So I sit in front of a computer. So what I have to work with is what we already know. So I have to try to find new antibiotic resistance genes based on the knowledge that we already have. And one way you can use then one approach is to just use sequence alignment and see if you can find anything that match that it's kind of it's kind of similar. And, and then you might detect something that is a variant of something new. But what we do is that we instead use uh, probabilistic models that are created from multiple sequence alignments. So, so we take a group of genes, let's say then metallobetalactamases, and then we create um, a hidden marker model, which is then a probabilistic model that then becomes like a kind of a blueprint of that class of genes. And that model then takes into account the variability and uh, but also the conserved regions of that group or class of genes. And then we can use that model to then scan uh, DNA sequence data. And doing that, we can't find anything that's completely new, obviously, because we still base this model on what's, what's out there. But we can find genes that differ a bit more than what you can find from normal sequence alignment. Uh, so that is a kind of the overview or the idea of what we're doing. And I, and I guess one of the key things here is that you can 
in this model, in this hidden Marco model, you have certain parts of the sequence or maybe even certain individual residues in the sequence that might be highly concerned. And those sort of define the entire expected sequence that you might pick up. Pick up. Am I getting this right? Exactly. That, yeah, exactly. There are some regions that are very conserved. And then the model takes that into, uh, into account when then predicting if a gene you do find, does this really belong to this class of genes? Does it have this region conserved or not? Uh, and then you get some kind of score out from that matching. So, yeah. And I guess one of the key points here as well is that the regions that are not very well conserved in your original alignment that you sort of mm. use to feed this model with, uh, I guess those those regions won't matter so much for the for this for this score. Yeah, you can expect a lot more variability in those regions, and you can accept them still as being belonging to that class of genes. Yeah, because I guess this is how it how it differs from a normal sequence alignment. That in a sequence alignment, you would essentially say that all these bases or all these residues are of equal importance. Yeah. And in your probabilistic model, you say no, only part, only some of these actually carry a lot of information for this particular family of genes. Yeah. You, you have applied this, this kind of method to a number of different resistant gene families by now. Um, so which families have you, have you been working with and what has the rationale been for, for selecting those specific families? Mm -hmm. So mainly I have worked with fluoroquinolone resistance genes, tetracycline resistant genes and beta-lactamases, but then mostly focusing on metallo-beta-lactamases. And uh, I would say they have been chosen based on how important antibiotic is. Uh, and also how many already known genes that are out there, because we need a couple of known genes to be able to create a model that can identify new genes. So, um, yeah, I would say that's the rationale behind how, it. How many would you need? How many, how many starting genes would you need to get the re reasonable Okay, model? I haven't pushed the lower limit of this, but I, have a, I had a model that was created from nine genes. It worked all right. And but what, I would say the more, the better. Yeah, and what's, what would be the trouble of having a model that is like built from too little a sequence set? Is that that you can't really verify it? I, that's, that's one of the things. So, so we, we do verify the models. Uh, we do cross-validation of them. So we, do, we build a model of, with all genes except for one, and then we test the model on that excluded gene, and then we repeat that for every gene. So the more genes you have, the more you can get a better estimate of how good the model is. Uh, but then I would say the other thing is that if you only have three genes, then you don't really know how much they can, much they can vary or how conserved is this position or is it just happens that just these three genes that we know of, they happen to have this position conserved. But it's not really, that doesn't mean that the rest of them that we don't know of, that they have this position conserved. Yeah, so it, uh, so. so it becomes hard to sort of distinguish between the functional parts of the gene and the genes that can be more wobbly or whatever you would say. Yeah, I, w I, would, I would think so. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. When you say it, it seems, it seems very reasonable. So let's see, you, you were, you're saying that you had been working with three different families of antibiotics, I think, fluoroquinolones, um, 
Beta Lactam Maces. Did you say tetracyclines as well? Yeah, tetracyclines. Yes. Uh, so just submitted. Um, so, what would sort of prevent this the extension of this model into other groups? I mean, of course, these were selected on important antibiotics as one criterion. But is there something that is also that also makes these families of genes more amendable for modeling, for example? Not really. I mean, there there is work that has been done now where a master student in Eric Christensen's group, he has developed models for macrolide resistance genes and has now just create a new model for amino glycoside resistance genes. So I think this can be extended for to as many gene classes or families as you want. And I guess some, yeah. Which I guess means that you could also start expanding the model into completely different families of genes that have nothing to do with antibiotic resistance, right? I think so, yeah. So, I mean, in essence, I mean, we've been discussing this very much from the point of an antibiotic resistance discovery framework, but it could actually be basically a uh, well-concerned biological function type of framework as well. Yeah, yeah. That's very cool. One has to think, though, I mean, we don't take into consideration the structure of the protein and stuff like that, and there might also be things that might affect how things work and, and so on. So we only look at the sequences. That's the only thing we can look at. But So that's actually an interesting point. I mean, when you've been looking at tetracyclines, I think there are three main classes of resistance mechanisms. How, I mean, does is the approach in any way impacted by the type of mechanism? Because there you have these kind of ribosomal protection mechanism, uh, efflux or active yeah. efflux of the antibiotic. So is there some is there some difference in how the model is doing with the different types of mechanisms? Mm, I mean, in that case, it was a difference, but I was mainly because, okay, so to begin with, we created three different models for the tetracycline resistance, and that was based on the three mechanisms. To combine them didn't make sense. Um, no, of course not, because they are completely different yeah, gene families. Yeah. So um, Then I would say the difference there is that, okay, A, the enzymatic genes, they're not that many known, so the model isn't super super good. It works, but it's not perfect. And I don't know if that affects it, but for efflux pumps, it's a bit different because some efflux pumps are uh, only targeting tetracycline, while some other efflux pumps, they can pump out a little bit of everything. And that's also the tricky thing. We want to find those then that only <laughs> that targets tetracyclines, but we don't really know that. We haven't, we haven't done that specific testing of the genes we have um, predicted so far, so we don't yeah, yeah, because this was sort of what I suspected. I think my, my question might have been a little bit leading there because I, I can sort of see how for a lot of these compounds there are uh, a very specific target, but for many of these efflux genes, we don't know how specific that is. No. So in just as a gut feeling, it feels like efflux would be one of the more problematic ones to model in terms of being specific to the antibiotic resistance function. Mm. Of course, you will find more transporters, but you won't really know if they are the transporters you were looking for. No. So the only thing we can do is that we, we, choose, we choose the sequences uh, from which to build a model from to begin with to only contain genes that are selectively pumping out tetracyclines and have been confirmed to do that. Uh, and then we also actually excluded some other pumps that 
could be classified as that to begin with, but they differed a bit too much in the sequences and they belong to another subfamily of those um, major superfamily. I don't remember the name of it now. But I think I think that's ma- major facility. That, that's the yeah. That's right? the, um, uh, so it's but it's a, bit, a little bit of of trial and error with the model creation. You see a little bit. So we do this, like I said, the cross validation, and based on that, you get a, a, at least some kind of feeling of how good it is to detect what we're searching for. But then there's another important part of this model creation, and it is to test for negative sequences. So like you said, we don't want to find things that that are similar, but don't really have the function we are looking for. So then we want to find sequences that, that are very similar, and um, the sequences are similar, but they don't provide a phenotype. So we have to find a good data set for that. And that is difficult, but also yeah. very important. Um, and I guess there's the, one of the bigger things that you're doing in your method is this kind of... Um, testing of the threshold values where you can say that this is for sure belonging to this family and it's not belonging to something else. Exactly. And, for and some, I imagine that for some families this is easier and for some it's harder. Mm. Yeah, some, some like metallobita lactamases, they have the well-defined uh, superfamily where you know the function of other members in that superfamily and then you know that this function is not... Uh, it does not provide re- give resistance to uh, carbapenems, for instance. It does something else. But in the other superfamilies, you can have a bit more unclear, a hypothetical protein that belongs to just have some kind of a conserved domain. And it hasn't been proven that it doesn't provide resistance, but no one really knows what it actually does. And then it's it's difficult. Yeah. I guess the, now, now we're getting into the details of why bioinformatics is not always able to provide a definite answer to your question, despite that the sequence material is out there. Yeah. Um, So we've been talking a lot about the method now, but I mean, in terms of what you're finding in your papers, I mean, do you do you find any new resistance genes? And is there something that you can say, like, if you if you're going to look at your entire work on this subject, is there some top line findings that you would like us to take away from this interview? Uh, there's loads of them. <laughs> I would say that's the, <laughs> the main finding here. There's so Those many. Those are the novel resistance gene, you mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's so many. Uh, and I mean, new data comes out all the time, get published. And I w- if, if I just wait two months and then scan the new genomes that are out there, then I will find some, some new resistance genes in those genomes. It's just, it's incredible. Um, but then, like I said before, many of them are variants of already known ones. Yeah, I, I guess that's sort of the largest category that you would get in this kind of approach, because in some sense, those will be the sure thing candidates, because they are novel. They are not exactly the same, but they match the model very well. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. So, so you can do that. That's the thing you can do is place them in a phylogenetic tree to get some kind of feeling like how... How far away is this? Is it likely that it will work or not? And then... Yeah, this is one thing that I've really enjoyed in your uh, in your work, that you've been putting these novel genes into a context and said something about what is the likely evolutionary connections between all these genes. I think that's that's something that is I think really has been to your credit in 
basically everything that you've been putting out with this with this method. Um, if you if you look a little bit like not at the phylogeny but more at the environmental or the settings that these bacteria come from, is there something you can say about trends? I mean, quite often we're talking about soil as this super diverse compartment full with potential resistance genes that haven't been discovered yet. But do you see anything like that in your data? I would say it depends uh, a little bit on what kind of resistance genes you're looking at. Uh, So, for instance, ribosomal protection genes, those we find a lot of in human-connected environments. So we we find in wastewater and in um, uh, pig, pigs and human, human poop. Um, not that many new variants, but known, var- but there are new variants. Um, and then if you look at the other classes, I would say it's spread out a lot. I wouldn't say that there's one particular environment that sticks out. It's a little bit everywhere. Okay. I guess um, to, to me, that's somewhat surprising and, I, I would say, okay, so, so, so yeah, uh, one of the reasons might be that the environmental data set that we have looked at are the ones that are the least deeply sequenced. Yeah. And that means for us to find a gene, it has to be reasonably deep, uh, deep sequenced. Otherwise, we can't uh, assemble it. And then we don't classify it as we have found something. Then it's just noise. Uh, so I can't say that we don't find anything in those environments. It's just that... Or that there, there is none in those variants. It's just that we don't find anything in there. So I guess there's well, also this kind of trade-off there with that if soil, for example, is super diverse, the same sequencing depth as in a less diverse environment don't get you that far. Exactly. Exactly. And that is the ongoing argument. Because what we, what we do sometimes also is that we pull samples from... Uh, so say that you have uh, 10 water samples, but they're from different locations. We just pull them together and see what's, what's in there. But it might be that the diversity between the sites is too big and we don't have enough uh, coverage on each site to actually get that specific gene that, that dwells in that area. You know, you're working on developing this model, but is your work mainly developing the model and testing it on, on other data sets or does your work also involve applying this model to data sets from different environments to find out do we have sort of what is the what does the resistome so to say look here? Uh, yeah, uh, no, the model is actually the models are there and and the method itself is published and ready to use. Uh, I, I'm not doing any development on new models, but. I still use the, the models that are developed to analyze data sets. Um, right now, I don't do, do it that much, but I know that there is a PhD student who's going to start uh, soon to, to just use this model, apply it to loads of different metagenomic data sets and see what's in there. Yeah, so we should say that. I don't think I said it in the top, on the start of this conversation. Your method is called FARGene, right? Yes, it is. Uh, so what does FARGene stand for? Fragmented Antibiotic Resistance Gene. 
identifier. So the so the F is for fragmented. So it's because it's. I mean, you obviously you can apply it to uh, to whole genomes, but it's the the main benefit compared to other methods. I would say is that you can apply it to fragments. Yeah, and that's a very cool feature. We we like that a lot in in this lab as well. <laughs> Zooming out a little bit, looking at this a little bit more big picture. So we we now. One of the take-home messages here is that there's loads of these novel resistance gene variants out there. Uh, so what? how does this identification of these genes help us to fight antimicrobial resistance writ large? I would say there's a couple of uh, things. And one thing being that we can identify in what what species and in which environments that it's likely that we have loads of resistance genes and then there's a more a higher risk that they might actually mobilize. Uh, but that in turn also depends on, I mean, what kind of environment, is there any even any connection with bacteria that can transfer to humans or and things like that? But it might, might help us pinpoint some, some important environments. Um, second thing would be to think about the future of diagnostics. So in, in the future, it might be that uh, we, we want to sequence everything we have, and then we want to identify quickly, is this bacteria resistant to anything? And then if we don't, if we don't have the sequence, we don't know. But if we have the sequence, then it's just like, yep, this is a resistance gene, and it gives resistance to this and this. I snapped on something on uh, which you mentioned here. Uh, using Fargene, can you actually determine the species that uh, the uh, the individual actually resides in, or can you only identify like closely related gene families? Good question. Uh, that is that is the drawback with uh, with the when using metagenomes. We cannot identify the species in which it is located. Okay. So um, so then it kind of like shed some some. Uh, some more kinks into the idea that using this as like a uh, idea to predict like where the next superbug is going to come from. But you can only say that like given in this microbiome, we have this, uh, not even abundance, I would say this prevalence of antibiotic resistance genes. You can't just say like, oh, it's going to be Sedimonas or it's going to be Acetinobacter or it's going to be some other weird thing. Yeah, no, no. So we can't say that. We can't, we, I mean, obviously, if, if you have a sequence genomes, you can apply it to that as well. And then, you know, the species. But for the metagenomic data, no, we can only say that in this kind of environment, we have a large diversity. Or in this kind of environment, we only find very much the same gene. Although I think that you can get some hints. I mean, look, looking at, the papers you've published on this, I mean, if you find a gene in a metagenomic, that it comes from a metagenomic data set, if you have a sufficiently large phylogenetic tree, you can still quite often place it somewhere in that tree, right, Fanny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're right in that. Uh, but that, that then depends on that you have the other data to begin with. Yeah. And, and it, it, I mean, it, of course, it won't be that fine-grained so that you will be able to say that Pseudomonas, whatever is... Uh, no. will be the source of this gene. But you might be saying, that, okay, there seems to be something among the pseudomonads that yeah. we might be seeing in the yeah, future. Yeah, definitely. And, and it can also actually be used to kind of fill out the, the gaps in the phylogenetic trees. So you say you have a cluster of pseudomonas that, that are carrying, uh, carrying the gene, and then you have another species. And, and it seems like in the original tree, like they are very closely connected. And then you find 
loads of resistance genes in another environment when you then, for some reason, then would know that it's probably not, not that many pseudomonas in here, but they are located in between those branches in a phylogenetic tree, which then might make you think, ah, like, oh, there's something missing here. Maybe there's a species carrying this gene that we don't know about yet. Um, and can just yeah give a more give us more information on on that. Connected to the last question here, with like what what would be the um, what would be the use of these of knowing about these resistance genes? I mean, given that there are so many of them, should we should we sort of be scared about these genes? Is this a, a threat to human healthcare? And like, what magnitude would you put that on relative to other resistance threats? Yeah, no, I uh, I wouldn't be that worried. Mo- most of the genes are located like chromosomally located in species that are completely harmless and will probably never even make the jump into a pathogen. Uh, but then, why, is, why is that? Why wouldn't they make that jump? If they are in a species... Okay, so, so the species still has to be... This is a bit unclear. But the, the reason is we think that genes can't just jump from any spe- one species to any species whatsoever. There has to be some kind of relation there. And we see those patterns in the phylogenetic trees where it seems like there are some gene flows from some kind of uh, phyla to some specific kind of phyla. And it depends a little bit on what kind of uh, resistance gene we're talking about. Um, but then the second thing is that the genes, the, the species also has to be in the same environment. Yeah, of course. Yeah. If you have one, a young species out in the ocean and we find a new resistance gene there, it's not very likely that that species is going to swim into the, I don't know, the sewers jump up and then uh, meet a, a human sperm, <laughs> human-associated species. But, I mean, it's not, it's not completely impossible, of course. Of course, it can happen. No, I mean, it's, a, it's one thing that I'm pointing to a lot of the time is that the bacterial world is so big. I mean, there's so many bacteria that uh, numbers become a bit... I mean, we get lost in the numbers because they are be- becoming so... The number of bacteria is so big. So, I mean, uh, it, I have come to think that if something can happen in the bacterial world, it will happen. Uh, so it's more a mm. question of, is this impossible or is there a small probability? Because if there mm. is a small probability, it will happen. Uh, and I came mm. to this after realizing and that something that we expect to ha- to happen somewhere in some lab once in a hundred years happens several million times per second in mm. across all bacteria. So it's like the mm. difference between what we're seeing in the lab and the number of bacteria that actually exist is huge. It's so huge that we can't really comprehend mm. it. No, and and I mean obviously it has happened. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and I would say that that the thing that's worrying is rather than what you say, it's the diversity of the genes that we see. There are so many different genes that some of them are going to make the jump eventually. Yeah. And then but, time um, is a big factor. But you can't just pinpoint exactly. And you, but you but then you can't just pinpoint one exactly gene and say, I don't think this one is going to make it. It's just it's difficult to know. But of course, there are some risk factors. I mean, you can we find some genes in in already human-associated bacteria, that might be a risk factor. We find some new genes in already located on plasmids, which means that they have at least the possibility to move to other, to other species. So there are some things. Some, some of the genes, I would say, is a bit worrisome. 
you find them even in um, uh, yeah in human related data then your model it on its own won't be able to say if this is on a mobile genetic element such as a plasmid or not it that will be information that you will need to know about the sequence you supply to the model right mm, exactly but we can we can definitely can see events of it in the phylogenetic tree so if uh, yeah. so, well, that's very cool. yeah so that, then again if you have a whole group of uh, proteobacterial species carrying different kinds of genes and then in the middle you have um a bacteroidetes and that might indicate that something here has jumped because this gene seems yeah. to come from from a proteobacterial species but is now located in, in the bacteroidetes so we can definitely see hints of that yeah and and you also have some solid experimental data to back up that your model is actually picking up relevant resistant gene variants yeah so we uh, yeah i i don't yeah Tell, tell us about it. I don't remember the numbers. So No, so we have tested, uh, chosen a couple of genes to actually verify. So we have uh, synthesized the sequences and then tested them in E. coli. Um, uh, I, would, I don't remember the exact numbers for tetracyclines, uh, but I know that for beta-lactamases or metallobeta-lactamases, we have tested 28 genes. And there was, uh, with 25 of them, were functional in E. coli. And, and those were good. Which is a very high number, considering that you also have the genes also have to be compatible to be expressed. So, how does your method compare to, for example, ResFAMS, which is also based on hidden Markov models and is also sort of aiming to discover uh, not that well described resistance genes? How how is how do these two methods compare? Mm. I would say the main difference is that we put much more time and effort into really optimizing the models to make sure that the models actually, when we say that there is a that is a resistance gene, that it's it's more likely that it's actually a true positive. So, if if you look at some of the models from ResFAMS, then it's just it feels like they're just taking a bunch of sequences and created a model without really testing it. So they have just used a fixed threshold whether a gene is classified as belonging to that group or not. And it can also be that they've taken 10 sequences that are almost identical and created a model based on that. And then you have a more overtrained the model into just that particular sequence instead of taking the whole variability into account. So that's, I would say that's the main reason. We spend a lot of time in optimizing the models, making sure that they really work as they should. So they are essentially relying on a much more automated approach, is that... Yeah. Yeah, I would. Um, I would think that that's how they do it. And that means that they uh, might not be specific enough. I guess. I mean, sensitivity shouldn't be that much of an issue, perhaps. Or maybe it is. Maybe it's both. I think. I think for full length genes, they will still work all right. Uh, they probably won't find the most divergent ones. I mean, not the most divergent ones, but maybe not as divergent as we can find. Since we, we try to, to not overtrain the model, we actually do some kind of clustering of the genes before we create the models and so on to make sure that we don't have too many that are too, too much alike. Um, but the specificity could definitely be an issue if they by accident include something from, from a superfamily that might look alike. If you just do an automatic approach, then it might look like this, this sequence belongs to this, this family. And then that's included in the model. And I've seen examples of that where for metallobetalectomases, for instance, where they publish sequences that most likely do not confer any resistance. 
but they publish them as hypothetical metallobetalactamases, which is, yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't trust them. I wouldn't trust, trust them with my life, <laughs> uh, but I, I would trust them to some, some extent. But I would say ours is more, more reliable. And, and the main difference, I would also say that ours is actually also optimized for fragments. Yes. So that's a very big difference. Depend, I mean, it's, that's a it big extends difference. the possible use cases or the reasonable use cases a lot. Yeah. Okay, then, Fanny, thank you very much for taking your time today and sharing your thoughts on this very, uh, very interesting subject and enlightening us a little bit on how the bioinformatic methods work here. Uh, we, appreci- we have appreciated it a lot. Thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. It was great having you on. With that, I think we'll move into this month's pile of interesting papers. We will start with a look into what happens with resistance genes when their bacterial carriers die, or more specifically, when they are getting killed. This is the topic of a paper that was published last month in Frontiers in Microbiology. And Anna, could you summarize the findings for for us? In the recent years, multidrug-resistant bacteria have become a serious concern for healthcare providers worldwide. And among these bacteria, Acinetobacter baumani is a common pathogen, which occurs typically in the hospital environment. And this bacteria uh, is declared one of the most uh, concerning multidrug-resistant pathogen, which requires development of new antibiotics. At the origin of this problem is the ability of um, baumani to become resistant to antibiotic treatment by acquiring resistant genes. And recent reports suggest that multidrug resistant strains uh, have been found not only in the hospitals, but also in the agricultural settings. And what is also important is that species from the same genus can serve as reservoirs for resistant genes. Thus, identifying multidrug resistant gene reservoirs and modes of gene release to naive pathogens can be critical to understanding and combating the spread of antibiotic resistance. So, in addition to encoding a number of antibiotic resistant determinants, uh, this bacteria holds also equipped with a comp- with a, um, it is well equipped to outcompete the neighboring bacteria in a number of ways. The genus Acinetobacter has several uh, types of secretion systems, including T6 secretion system or T6SS. And it is a complex multi-component system that is anchored in the inner cell membrane that can build a spike which upon contact with membrane injects toxins in the prey cell. Also, this bacteria contains more than 30 contact-dependent inhibition system, or CDI. And it is also a complex system uh, which is anchored in the outer membrane and consists of transporter and a toxin, which is also released during the contact with the prey cell. So these mechanisms allow Acinetobacter species to um, be enabled to thrive in a diverse and competitive environments and uh, give them a competitive advantage. Another focus of this study are bacteriophages. 
Bacteriophages have been also described as vehicles for multi-drug resistance spread through the transduction of genes on mobile genetic elements that contain um, antibiotic-resistant genes. And the mechanisms of this are poorly understood, even though there are reports that lytic bacteriophages can release intact plasmid DNA that potentially can contain antibiotic-resistant genes. And, um, this DNA can be further acquired and expressed by unrelated bacteria in the same environment. This particular phenomenon has not been studied in the bacteriophages infection of the Acinetobacter genus. And it is a rather important to understand the um, phage impact on multidrug resistant dissemination before designing, for instance, phage therapies, as well as for understanding of the spread of multidrug resistance. So to answer these questions, the authors of this paper, they collected uh, samples from uh, antibiotic-free farm and they isolated several strains of Acinetobacter from fecal samples of hens, turkeys, and ducks. In total, uh, these isolates were resistant to 14 different antibiotics, as well as 8 out of 10 isolates were multidrug resistant. Uh, so the authors of this paper, they hypothesized that contact-dependent killing mechanisms present in these bacteria could assist in obtaining DNA from neighboring organisms by accelerating their deaths and lysis. So in order to uh, test this, they performed competition assays where they took uh, Acinetobacter baumani, which is a predatory species, and co-culture them together with a prey species, which were Acinetobacter radioresistance, Yonsuni, and Wolfie co-culturing of the prey species together with Acinetobacter baumani considerably reduced the cell number of the prey species. So what kind of mechanism, particular mechanism, Acinetobacter baumani used to kill the prey strains? Is it the contact-dependent inhibition or CDI, or is it T6 secretion system? So in order to test that, they co-incubated uh, the um, CDI and T6SS mutants together with the, to compare them um, to the co-incubation with a wild type strain. The CDI knockouts have a minimal effect on Yonsuni and radioresistance compared to the wild type co-incubation, while one of the mutants, CDI1, resulted in a greater survival of Lwulfim. While when testing for the T6SS mutants, there was a contribution to killing by the T6SS uh, for resistance, radioresistance and Wolfi and minimal killing for Yonsuni. So basically this experiment revealed that Yonsuni has minimal susceptibility for, to CDI and T6SS, while radioresistance has minimal susceptibility to CDI but susceptible to T6SS instead, and Wolfi is susceptible to both. So the overall conclusion of this experiment is that the results indicate that CDI system has minimal impact on Acinetobacter interspecies competition, except in case of the Acinetobacter Wolfi strain. So the next step 
was to determine if the prey strains can release intact DNA into the environment through contact-dependent killing. Um, and the authors conducted a co-culturing essay. In this case, they used the nitrocellulose membrane to prevent physical contact of the prey strains and the predator strain. And they used um, PCR to detect the kanamycin gene that was located on the plasmids uh, in the prey species. In all cases where co-incubation happened without the nitrocellulose membrane, uh, there is kanamycin gene present. So this demonstrates that contact is necessary for cell killing and that the intact kanamycin gene is released from these cells. During the initial bacterial strain isolation, they also isolated several bacteriophages. And uh, to test the ability of bacteriophages to release host DNA, uh, they performed a phage-mediated DNA release assay. So they used the GFP expressing acinetobacter radioresistance uh, that was infected with two phages, and then the um, host DNA was recovered after the incubation. And again, PCR focanamycin gene revealed that there was uh, much more recovered DNA. So this shows that phages can accelerate the spread of antibiotic resistance through release of intact resistant genes. Further, the authors decided to test if this released DNA is transferable to the other cells. So they transferred um, E. coli cells and plated them on canamycin selective media. So what they found is that released DNA is successfully transformed in E. coli. So together this shows that phage-released DNA can be source of resistance um, determinants for competent cells. So to conclude, this study demonstrated that contact-dependent competition between bacterial species can readily contribute to DNA release into the environment, including antibiotic-resistant determinants. And uh, the constant lysis and turnover of bacterial populations during the natural life cycle of the lytic bacteriophages uh, is an underappreciated mechanism for the liberation of DNA and subsequent genetic, genetic exchange. So these results have a great implications for the phage treatments, as well as provide evidence for an alternative ways uh, of rapid um, multidrug resistance spread in bacterial species. Thank you, Anna. Can I, can I ask you a very technical question for us, which I actually don't really follow from, uh, from the paper or your description of it. Uh, how, how is it that they can ensure that contact-dependent, uh, that, that this mechanism of killing is contact-dependent with this membrane? Um, could, could you walk me through that again? Because I, I just don't really get it. So basically what it says is that you, um, as I understand it, you take a plate and first you deposit the prey species and on top of this you put a nitrocellulose membrane and then you deposit there the predatory species. So basically the nitrocellulose membrane is supposed to work as a physical barrier that pre prevents the direct yeah, physical contact between cells but still allow the molecules to go through the membrane. So they compare the results of this assay to 
the control where prey and predatory species grown separately on the plates or their mixture when they are able to be in physical contact with each other. Yeah, but then, then they do some kind of uh, detection by PCR, and this is where I get lost. Okay, so uh, after the assays, one with neutrocellulose membrane, one without, they recover the DNA, and then they basically yes. do PCR with primers for conomycin gene. But, but wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't they pick that gene yeah. up regardless of whether there has been killing or not? This is this is the part I don't get. I mean, how they how they specifically get this from the lysed cells? So I had uh, actually written exactly that question down, and I thought very briefly about it when I uh, uh, when I uh, wrote down the question. But maybe so. This is speculating quite a bit here. If the individuals can actually lyse the cells, then they will actually uh, degrade any any. DNA that are free floating as part of the prey. So if if they are able to successfully uh, predate uh, onto a prey, maybe they will degrade all of their uh, DNA and pick it up, and thus making it unavailable for PCR. Okay, so in the case where they are separated, they mm -hmm. don't detect the canamycin resistance gene using PCR. No. So how is how do they do this DNA extraction? Do they somehow selectively select extracellular DNA? Okay, so so the so the answer to my question is really uh, that they're doing an extracellular PCR, and that's why they're not seeing it. Okay, that, then I get this. Then we can actually discuss the science of this paper. Could you just explain how this would help us with when it comes to phage therapy? Go a bit more in depth about that. It won't help us, uh, but <laughs> but it's it's an interesting data point um, because one thing that has been discussed is to use phage therapy as a uh, as an option when you have multidrug resistant pathogens that don't react to antibiotics. And what this paper is saying is that when you use phage ther therapy or when when you use phages to kill bacteria you have a, re a release of resistance genes that can be taken up by other hosts. Um, so I think the connection to phage therapy in my mind is that you have, you solve one problem and you create another one. Uh, and that's sort of what the trade-off would be in my mind. Okay, makes sense. It's sort of a tale of caution. Yeah, sort of. Like, yeah, a cautionary tale of what, what we should think about before applying phage therapy widen about then please correct me now if i'm wrong i might very well be wrong but if you have conjugation then conjugation is more likely to happen between two um, closely related species the more closely related there are there's a bigger probability that they can and will conjugate but if you have transduction that can happen between species that are quite quite different or is it a bit more different or doesn't it matter I mean, I think it depends on the phage itself and like what mechanism the phage has to uh, actually infect cells. Because if, it, if, it's, if it's a very promiscuous phage, then of course uh, it will be, as you described, it will have capacity to spread the genes through a wider variety of, uh, uh, of species of bacteria. But if it is, for example, a very specific phage, then it will only be able to target that species. So I think it is, uh, you need to 
know more about the the mechanism mechanism of trans transaction of that particular page before you can actually uh, make any statement on that. Uh, because I was thinking about what we discussed previously with Fanny, uh, the probability of resistance genes spreading, and say, well, the probability is quite low because there's quite a big distance between uh, these the resistance genes she finds and humans. And also thinking, let's say, uh, I, I read somewhere that. Uh, surfers outside the coast of England has, or 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 the Great Britain, uh, has a higher proportion of resistant bacteria in them because they get it from the ocean or the water they swallow. Um, so I was thinking, if you, if you if you use phage therapy uh, a lot, if that could sort of increase the spread of resistance genes f between very sort of uh, taxonomically different. Um, or evolutionary different species. I, I think I think this is a very good point, Marcus. I was thinking the same thing actually when looking at this paper in conjunction with what Fanny was talking about, that a lot of these genes won't be likely to spread. And what we're seeing here is essentially that this I don't even know if this is really strictly a transduction mechanism, but I mean this spread based on um, lysis from phages is i mean it's it's essentially it makes dna free and whoever is competent to take it up can can gain it and that enables uptake of genes over a larger distance than conjugation would typically do uh, on the other hand of course those genes would still have to be compatible in a new host uh, we talk about this quite at length in the environmental factors involved in antibiotic resistance development paper we wrote a couple of years ago but it's, I mean, it's still, it makes this step from one type of bacteria to another much shorter. I, and I, I really agree on that. Then can I make another comment, which is a little bit on sidetrack on the surface study that you were referring to? The problem with that surface study is that it doesn't really account for other lifestyle factors. So maybe if you're a surfer, you also have a propensity to take other risks so it doesn't decisively show that this is because you are getting it from the water. It shows that surfers have higher rates of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in their gut. Period. That's what they show. And I think one has to think a little bit about that. Uh, there could be other factors involved in that, uh, aside from just the surfing alone. And I, as far as I remember, they never control for that in the study. But it, it is an interesting paper. I mean, there there is also these kind of theoretical studies looking at how much seawater you would have to take in to pick up res a resistant bacterium. And so th these things are being done, and it's good that people are doing them because it gives us a picture of how likely resistance is to spread through the environment. Pseudomonas agridose is a notorious biofilm former, and it turns out that depending on its lifestyle, whether it's planktonic growth or growing in a biofilm, this bacterium takes different evolutionary trajectories in response to sublethal concentrations of the antibiotic ciprofloxacin. And this leads to different sets of mutations with different effects on, for example, fitness, according to a paper that was published this summer in NPJ Biofilms and Microbiomes. And Mabuba, what can you teach us about this? 
Well, before jumping to the main topic, I will shortly brief about the natural selection of antibiotic resistance, because I think this term is related with this study. When bacteria multiply, one cell divides into two daughter cells. But before this division, a bacterium has to make two identical copies of its DNA or genome. Every time bacteria go through this process, there is a chance or risk, whatever you say, that error might occur, and we call it mutation. Well, this, and these mutations are random and could occur in anywhere in the DNA. Some mutations have no effect on bacteria, some are harmful, but some provide advantage to bacteria in certain situations. For example, maybe a random mutation could make the bacteria grow better in the presence of antibiotic, and this is called the natural selection of antibiotic resistance. Here, in this paper, the authors wanted to investigate, apart from this natural selection of resistance, what are the trajectories that induce Pseudomonas aeruginosa to evolve in the presence of sub-inhibitory level of ciprofloxacin? Well, for the experimental setup, what they did, they took two different strains of Pseudomonas aeruginosa as ancestor cells. One is wild-type HA1, and other is major catalyst mutant CAT-A. And they laid these two ancestor cells evolve in vitro with the presence or absence of antibiotic. This study was run for both biofilm and for planktonic culture. And for biofilm study, first a colony biofilm was generated on polycarbonate membrane from an overnight culture of ancestor cell. Then the biofilm was transferred to two LB plates, one containing antibiotic and other without antibiotic. After 48 hours, the biofilm was disrupted and the culture were transferred to new LB plates with and without antibiotic. Every 48 hours, they transferred, they disrupt the biofilm and transferred it to new LB plates for propagation. And they named this transfer and propagation as so-called passage. So the first passage is P0 and the last passage is P6. So altogether, they had seven propagation. They also followed the similar procedure for the planktonic culture as well. Then they, they took the, this evolved population and they plated them with ciprofloxacin with a concentration higher than the MIC level. So the colonies that grown on the plates are considered as cip-resistant colonies. And, and then they did some genomic and phenomic analysis with these colonies. Well, this study generated some outstanding results that are really interesting, I think. For example, sip-resistant isolates have a prolonged lag phase, they had longer doubling time, they exhibited cross-resistance to beta-lactam antibiotic, they changed the motility, and there was also a shift to metabolic pathway to anaerobic respiration. And all these changes actually facilitate the resistant population to survive better in the presence of antibiotics. Overall, the study found that sip-resistant development is highly related with the bacterial lifestyle. For example, planktonic populations are more susceptible to generate high-level sip-resistant mutants than the biofilm population. Here, comparatively, MIC value was higher in plankton-evolved sip-resistant mutants than the biofilm-evolved-resistant mutant. And the reason is that plankton-evolved-resistant isolates contain mutation in both Gyrus A and persigens, as well as it has mutation in several efflux pump regulator genes. 
On the other hand, bifemal evolved population mostly had mutation in MEX G gene, which is a regu negative regulator of efflux pump. They also observed the lag phase of the SIP evolved resistant members, and SIP evolved resistant colonies showed longer lag phase and longer doubling time comparing to the ancestor cells. And it is proved from previous studies that extended lag phase is beneficial for survival of bacteria in the presence of antibiotic. Because with an extended lag period, bacteria has a chance to adapt in antibiotic stress and develop resistance. Um, they also did some computation experiment to identify, to determine the fitness cost of the sleep resistant colonies. And what they did, they took uh, SIP evolved resistant colonies and ancestor colonies in one is to one ratio and let them grow for let them grow for 24 hours and then they calculated and they actually calculate this fitness cost by generating a fitness index here fitness index is the ratio between the doubling time of SIP resistant colony and the ancestor colony after 24 hours of incubation and what they find, they found that an inverse correlation between the lag time and the fitness index was observed. So higher the lag time, lower the fitness. And the sleep resistant colonies had a higher lag time, so they had lower fitness. Well, another interesting feature that was observed in this study is cross-resistance. Though the population were exposed with ciprofloxacin, the evolved resistant members showed cross-resistance to beta-lactam antibiotics. And the reason they came up with this is some crucial genes in cell division and TCA cycle were mutated in resistant isolates. And their thinking maybe that could be the reason that's why these resistant isolates also showing the resistance toward the beta-lactam antibiotic. Mm, they also look for the, if there is any change of motility and they found that the sleep resistant mutants change the motility from the twitching to the swarming one. Like resistant population lost their twitching motility, but maintained swarming motility. And when they did the genetic analysis, they found that colonies that lost the twitching motility got mutation in type 4 pillages, but they had no mutation in quorum sensing genes. And I think one thing I should mention here is that uh, type 4 pillagings is crucial for twitching motility, and quorum sensing genes are significant for swarming motility. Some previous studies also found that uh, when pseudomonas and genomes are exposed with ciprofloxacin, they, they, they showed higher tendency to have swarming motility. But in this paper, the authors didn't tell anything why this swarming motility could be a beneficial role for here. They also find that there was a shift of metabolic pathway to the anaerobic respiration. And a number of genes of arginine catabolic pathway were mutated. And, and the thing is that impairment of this pathway promote the utilization of arginine by nitric oxide synthesis to produce nitric oxide. And this nitric oxide promotes anaerobic respiration, which also found in some previous studies that when Pseudomonas aeruginosa is treated with ciprofloxacin, anaerobic respiration occurs. And finally, the mutated genes that they identified in this study were also identified from the from Pseudomonas aeruginosa isolated from cystic fibrosis patient. So they concluded that 
the evolutionary process is actually happening in vivo when Pseudomonas aeruginosa is exposed to ciprofloxacin. Uh, this uh, increase in swarming motility, uh, was it observed in both uh, the planktonic and the biofilm phases, or was it only one of them? Actually, in the figure, they didn't mention about the biofilm or the planktonic one. They just showed the figure here that uh, that how the swarming motility is increased and the twitching motility is decreased here. Yeah, I think you can. Yeah, in the in the figure four, you can follow here that they didn't identify these two. Just showed, and in general here. Yeah, and I think that really makes sense because swarming motility is somewhat uh, important if you want to run away from a source, a uh, from a source of uh, toxins or some some dangerous chemical. If you think from the individual Pseudomonas cell uh, perspective, mm -hmm. like if you have like yeah. a source of uh, potentially you want to get away from it as, as fast as possible, then like twitching around yeah. won't like help that much. So you just uh, like want to leg it and get out of there. So that's a potential explanation. However, uh, that is not what's happening in a in a normal cell. So it would just like run around twitching all over the place because the source is homogeneous. So that might be an example why you get this huge increase in twitching yeah. motility. Sorry, in uh, not twitching, swarming motility. It's, it's sorry. Swarming. Uh, yeah, exactly. Then I can I can ask a question. So they they have looked at a lot of sort of oh, it has a mutation in this gene, that it has this phenotype, and it has this cross-resistance to this other bacteria, other antibiotic. So do you think we can draw some sort of conclusion about how this affects a bacteria that has uh, infected a person? Does it have any clinical relevance? What they have found out that um, this selection or this resistance mechanism perhaps also helps somehow with invasion or something else? Well, actually, the infection with Pseudomonas aeruginosa is common in cystic fibrosis patient. And um, most of the time it is found that normal antibiotic cannot work because actually they form biofilm in the infection site. And biofilm structure, biofilm structure actually has some different characteristics than the planktonic cell. So I think this study is really relevant because the way we treat the planktonic cell, we cannot treat the biofilm. This study actually focusing in this point, I think. I think also, if I, sorry, if I may just uh, follow up on that point, I think it also raises uh, a really interesting point here that uh, the evolutionary lines in the planktonic phase and the biofilm phase are not the same. Uh, and uh, as exactly like Mbuba said, this, uh, if you think of it from a clinical pr perspective, the biofilm isolates are the ones that we are really interested in because they are the ones that will be uh, prolonged uh, in the body uh, for a long period of time. They won't be the ones who are living freely in... Uh, yeah, so that is the main like selection uh, evolutionary line we need to address and not uh, just only think about the uh, planktonic uh, So the planktonic phase from a clinical perspective is not as important. Okay. Yes, yeah. I also think it was interesting that, I mean, this, this connection to that the planktonic phase is sort of promoting quick growth in general, uh, while in the biofilm mode of life, you might actually have a benefit from having a longer lag phase, staying around a little bit longer. I mean, there's 
the biofilm seemed to be offering a wider diversity of potentially successful strategies. That's, and I guess that's that's not really news, but it's it's interesting to just see how that plays out in terms of that the evolutionary trajectories for these mutations are also different. Yeah, it's a really cool comparison to make. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> I guess it's like cancer. There are some cells that grow really, really quickly, and when you apply a treatment that affects metabolism like radiation or chemotherapy, they die. But the slow-growing cells, perhaps the anaerobic cells, perhaps barely grow at all, they will survive because their metabolism is very low, not as affected by all these drugs. And then when you finish the treatment, they can start to grow. I, I, I really like the analogy with uh, cancer cells because, depend, of course, depending on which type of uh, cancer type it is, you will get these matrices around cancer cells. Uh, that can they they aren't like analogous like perfectly with biofilms, but you can get these diffusion barriers inside of cancer cells as well. So uh, that's actually a very common way that uh, cancer cells get resistant against chemotherapy. Uh, that they, they that the chemo the chemotherapeutic agents are just not able to be physically located to the cells themselves, and this is the same that happens uh, in in many biofilms as well. That um, so it's a, it's a really nice analogy. I like it. Okay. Thank you very much, my boo. So we have now discussed how antibiotics affect Pseudomonas aeruginosa at sublethal levels, but what happens if you combine antibiotics with antivirulence compounds? This was explored in a paper that was published in PLOS Biology in August, and I will tell you a little bit more about that now. Uh, so this is a very big paper uh, where they do a lot of work, um, and I'm not going to go into all the details of this because you can easily get lost along the way. Uh, but the idea of the paper is that they explore different combinations of uh, four different antibiotics and two antivirulence compounds, uh, and they look at what their effect is on Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And the four antibiotics they're looking at is ciprofloxacin, which we just talked about. It's colistin, which is one of the last resort antibiotics, which has a lot of side effects and is complicated to dose. Uh, they look at meropenem, which is a lost resort relative of penicillin, and they look at tobramycin. What they do find here is that there are some interactions eff effects between, um, between specific antibiotics and specific antivirulence drugs. But one of the big take-home messages that they really did try to hammer in here is that uh, there is not the one-size-fits-all here, but all of these interactions seem to be very concentration-dependent. You have to find the right concentration range to, um, uh, to, to see these kind of synergistic or antagonistic effects. So, essentially, they start off by just testing the uh, different antibiotics uh, at different concentrations against Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and then they test two different antivirulence agents, that's gallium, so gallium is targeting the iron scavenging pyoveridin, uh, which is a, I mean, it's one of those compounds that Pseudomonas is really famous for. Uh, so gallium is essentially targeting the iron metabolism. 
But and uh, furanone or furanone C30 um, is instead targeting uh, quorum sensing. So essentially, the cell-to-cell communication in Pseudomonas acrinosa. Uh, and both of those are considered to be different virulence mechanisms to some degree. Um, and they, first of all, they do find that, not surprisingly, antibiotics uh, have inhibitory effects on Pseudomonas agrinosa. Uh, but they also find that these antivirulence compounds at the high enough concentration are inhibitory. Uh, so this is the case of the dose-mated poison. They are both antivirulence agents, but they also actually kill uh, Pseudomonas ugrinosa at sufficiently high concentrations. And what they then do is that they start combining antibiotics with different concentrations of uh, antivirulence drugs. And overall, the, expe- the expectation here is that they would be independent, so that if you have the antibiotic, uh, exp- the increasing antibiotic exposure, you see a and you plot growth, you will see that it's gradually decreasing with the concentration of the antibiotic. Um, and then you would see that that curve is shifted downwards, but has the same shape when you add the uh, antivirulence compound, given that they are independently acting. That's not what they see in all cases. In some cases, they do see that these curves shifted in one direction or the other. And that's where you see the synergism and the antagonism between these drugs. And without going too much into details, they see that some of these antivirulence contents are making the antibiotics more potent, and some of them are making the antibiotics less potent. Uh, So you can sort of induce... um, different scenarios here. And what's also important is that they start looking at antibiotic-resistant mutants. So they have mutants that are antibiotic-resistant to these antibiotics that they test, and then they look at whether this resistance affects the um, susceptibility to the antivirulence compounds. So in some cases, you get an effect where the antibiotic resistance is also giving resistance or at least less susceptibility to the antivirulence compounds, where in other cases you see the opposite effect, so that the resistance is actually making them more susceptible or making the antivirulence compound effective at lower concentrations. So the take-home message here is, to a large extent, this is complicated. Um, There are a lot of different interactions that go go in different directions, and it's not obvious that just combining an antivirulence compound with an antibiotic at some random concentration is going to going to give a specific effect. You have to look at those effects multidimensionally before starting to treat patients with them. So one of the things they're discussing here is the potential to use uh, antivirulence drugs not on their own, but as as so-called adjuvants of antibiotics, so that they would make the antibiotic more potent. Uh, And that works in some cases. Some examples of where this effect actually is additive, where you have a stronger effect if you also add in the uh, antivirulous compound, is, for example, when you combine uh, gallium and tobramycin. Um, That gives a much stronger effect in terms of growth inhibition. Similarly, they see a stronger effect if you combine uh, furanone and ciprofloxacin and uh, furanone and meropenem. So those are examples of where these two drugs interact to make an even stronger effect than they would on their own. What they then do, I think this is actually one of the more important aspects in terms of our work, is that they look at whether these antivirulence 
compounds can affect the selection for antibiotic resistance. What you want to avoid if you use an antivirulence drug is to introduce a selection pressure indirectly for antibiotic-resistant clones. That's, then it's sort of defeating its purpose. Um, so they looked at their antibiotic-resistant variants, and they looked at their relative fitness um, in face of antibiotics and in face of um, antivirulence exposure and in, in the face of combined exposure. And they see that in most cases, these um, antibiotic resistance clones do not see a uh, selective advantage, and that the the cost of the antibiotic resistant determinant is generally maintained also when it's facing the antivirulence compound. So that it doesn't seem like the antivirulence compound make them less make make the antibiotic resistance factor less costly to carry for the bacterium. These antivirulence compounds um, can reduce um, the selection for antibiotics resistance in, in when they're used in uh, in combination treatment, and that's that's important for the kind of mixed selection effects that we're talking about in the environment, where you can have several different stressors occurring at the same time. Um, so if you if you would see antivirulence compounds combined with different antibiotics, the end result might not be the obviously the obvious one that you would have predicted without the antivirulence compounds. They can actually affect these selection processes. I think one good part of this paper is that they are very, being very clear about what the missing information is in terms of being able to use this information. So they, they list four different areas uh, of knowledge gaps where we need to figure out more to be able to better use antivirulence compounds in treatment. And one of them is that it's important to quantify the rate of resistance evolution uh, under a combinatorial treatment uh, so that we can see if these drug combinations actually slow down resistance evolution in some sense, or if it's just that um, that the rate might be the same, but the selective effects are not um, are not equal with and without the antivirulence compounds. The other thing they mention is uh, that you would like to test these combinations of antivirulence drug and antibiotics in actual animal models because the matrices inside of the body might just be much, much different from whatever we're seeing in the lab. So the effects might look very different in a more complicated matrix, which is a good point. Uh, of course, you also need to figure out if these antivirulence drug candidates or have some kind of toxicity to human cells. They also say that these beneficial effects of potential combination therapy would be dependent on which specific antibiotic resistance mechanism that is involved. Uh, so that a certain type of resistance mechanism might be more prone to be abrogated by the antivirulence drug, for example. And they say that one of the ways of testing this is, of course, to uh, use the same antibiotic, but mutants that have acquired different type of mechanisms of resistance. Uh, so that's actually something that is relatively easy to test. And the fourth thing they say is necessary is, of course, to look at drug delivery so that you can get these spe specific intermediate concentrations that you would like to get these interaction effects. And that's something that is exceedingly complicated to do uh, when delivering drugs into the human body. So I think it's, it's a very nice paper in that it's thought through. Uh, they thought about the implications of this and they are looking at... Um, they are looking at some both 
very theoretical ideas that stem from this, as well as the more broader implications for treatment. Um, one thing that always comes to my mind when we look at antivirulence drugs or potential antivirulence drugs is an old paper or see my old paper from 2014 in uh, Nature Reviews Microbiology, where I think the title of this paper is Targeting Virulence Can We Make Evolution-Proof Drugs? And one thing they discuss in this paper is that targeting virulence factor makes a lot of sense um, from from some kind of naive standpoint because you you won't kill bacteria, uh, but instead you would say that if you're being if you're being playing nice if you're playing nice we're not going to hurt you, uh, but that also has some important implications on how we would actually sort of clean up these infections. I mean, in an, immuno, in an immunocompromised patient, that might not be enough. So then maybe you will have to combine that with antibiotics, for example, which is sort of the pretext for this paper that I've just been talking about. Um, but then there is uh, this paper from 2010 by Churler uh, and Gabriel Perron and Angus Bucklin and Christian van Delden, uh, where they actually look into these kind of the kind of selective effects that you can get when you inhibit quorum sensing, which is not intuitive at all, uh, because in the short run, inhibiting quorum sensing makes the bacteria playing more nicely. Um, but what happens when you do that is that you um, you reduce the fitness advantage of those cells in that population that wouldn't co- uh, contribute to the common goods. And the common goods in this case would be the virulence factors. So normally, cheating the rest of the population has a fitness advantage. But if you inhibit quorum sensing, that ha- doesn't have a fitness advantage anymore. So then actually carrying the quorum sensing machinery is not costly anymore. So what happens that in their experiments is that you... You um, inhibit quorum sensing, you treat the population, but whatever small population is left, is left is actually predisposed to be more virulent because they have been able to carry this quorum sensing machinery for free for a very long time, or at least for the time of treatment. So when you take the treatment away, you might actually have an explosion of um, much more virulent cells. And... I don't know. I mean, they, they have this. They do this study, which is um, which also includes patients here. Uh, but I'm actually not sure that the like the in situ evidence for this are as strong as the in vitro evidence. Uh, but I think it's still an interesting thing to think about that virulence inhibition inhibition might not work in the same way as antibiotic inhibition and resistance mechanisms might not be the same and while antivirulence drugs sound like a very smart it it, it intuitively sound like a very smart concept there are some quirks to this that we still haven't figured out because we are still in disentangling how virulence and antivirulence compounds would work i was thinking about these concentrations of the different uh, antivirus compounds and especially on the furanone C30, they seem like this will never be able to be put inside of uh, 
inside of humans because they are so high. I mean, like when you're talking about hundreds of micromolars, like you're going to get osmotic effect as well. Yeah, I mean, yes. Uh, in the uh, in the in the first intro. Um interaction study they have insanely high concentrations yeah uh, but if you look at the uh, the, fo- the follow-up studies where they start looking at the um, uh, the the interaction effects with the resistant mutants and yeah. versus the wild type they are actually using lower concentrations in that experiment although I mean it's still like uh, 23 micromolars yeah, I so like, I mean it's still, still high it, this is still above the accepted uh, uh, what do you say thresholds for ever doing uh, human uh, human trials so wouldn't it i mean like and uh, the effects we see here like they still aren't strong enough so uh, sure i mean this i would just say that if you want to move forward forward with this uh with these uh scales you need to be below one micromolar if you ever want to see uh and and any uh hope of passing into human trials so the gallium concentrations are basically in that range, right? I mean, sure, <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Revealing my ignorance here, what what would be like a clinically acceptable concentration? Yeah, what I've learned is below one micromolar is okay. Uh, and of course, of course, if you can prove efficacy at the lower concentration, that's of course better because that means that you can uh, uh, introduce a lower. Uh, that means that if you, if so, it means two things. You can have a smaller, like first dose, uh, and you can also get the effect more securely throughout the entire body. So, for example, if you get like a bacteremia or something uh, and you do intravenous injections you will get effect throughout the entire body all times and not just uh, if you have an infection in like i don't know some some la- some uh, peripheral tissue or something like that so yeah but you realize that what you're saying now is that uh, uh, antivirulence treatments is dead on dead on arrival i mean if we can find an antivirulent agent that has like efficacy at lower temp- like, at lower concentrations of course that's fine but i mean just by looking at this paper here and based on the arguments that you have shown that you mentioned before i mean maybe not dead on arrival it would probably have its ni- its niche somewhere i mean like uh, especially when it comes to anti-quorum sensing stuff, we we can use it against, uh, like for example, in um, in uh, central lines and in catheters. Uh, it can be useful to uh, to try and reduce the amount of colonization available. For example, if we can like line it with some uh, anti-quorum sensing agents, but I don't think you would. I mean, of course, like I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm just a, I'm a microbiologist. So, but I don't think it would be. Uh, viable based on that one comment on that doesn't it matter um the antibiotic concentration if you, if you look at like uh, figure three i think they said that their best candidate is tobramycin with uh, either but if you look at like for gallium you can have pretty low micromolar gallium uh, and you will kill the relative growth i mean like of course, like I would like to see the data more thoroughly on this, but I mean, for me, like also you want to see this like dose dependage. Like as you say, you see, there's a, sl- I mean, it, it, there is a a like zero point two, zero point three ish uh, degree of decrease in growth, 
but this isn't dose dependent. If you like increase the concentration as well, this flips, right? So that would indicate that this mechanism isn't stable throughout the different concentrations. Uh, so, so like for example, if you introduce an if you introduce a course of antibiotics to the patient, you're not going to have a steady concentration throughout the the entire body of antibiotic. You're going to have a very high concentration at site of injection, which will then spread throughout the entire body, and that would mean that you can't be like absolutely sure that this effect is the effect that you're looking for if it is so small that you just flip it depending on uh, yeah depending on like how you also i don't i don't know the antibiotic uh, concentration they use here if that's like applicable to humans also that's just what they used uh, yeah. i have i don't know about tobramycin do you know you no not specific specifically for tobramycin but i mean this is the range this this seems okay. like quite typical treatment treatment concentration ranges. So it's yeah, yeah, especially final concentrations. Maybe not in the in the vial itself when you inject it, but when the the concentrations that you're aiming for to get into the tissue seems this uh, I, I... this seems. Uh, yeah, the target seems viable. But I think we should. I think it's always good to be very skeptical. But I mean, there are more antibiotics than these four. And there are, I assume, more antivirulence factors than these two. So, I mean, there could be some um, combinations that might be might be vi uh, viable. And I also think, uh, I mean, you don't you you can have a lot of sort of, I don't know, what do you call it? external infections? I don't know, infections in the eye, some wound infected, perhaps. You mean tissue infections? Yes. So you, you perhaps don't have to inject. And if you don't have to inject something, let's say you have to you have a very local infection, then you can have a, perhaps a fairly high concentration of the antivirulence factor and actually have an effect with the antibiotics. So let's say that, I don't know, if you have an infected wound in the knee, perhaps you can have a really high concentration of the antivirulence factor because it's not a very sensitive area. Maybe. Uh, I don't know like exactly how that would work because, I mean, the body is not a closed system from itself. So if you inject a large concentration of antivirulence factor, that will spread throughout the body. And if we, if we already know that we have a really high concentration, I think there could be some problems here. But but you always have to inject the antibiotics. I mean, if you have an infection, uh, let's say that you don't have an infection that has spread throughout the body. You have a, I mean, you can get an infection in the eye. Uh, I, I, I don't know how you treat that, but if you would have I don't know, some sort of eye drop yeah. or a cream, yeah. I mean, I, I guess there are. You you can you you for for eye for eye infections, yeah. you can actually do eye drops. Uh, that's that's not a typical. This is actually hinting a little bit at the fundamental difference between like antibacterial biocides and antibiotics, where antibiotics is something that you need to be able to take and. Uh, survive yourself while this antibacterial biocide is something that you never like digest so you just have it on your hands like ethanol or um, um, I'm trying to figure out like a better one than ethanol because people do actually consume ethanol but um, so I mean the it's you can use much higher concentrations to kill something with a biocide than you would be able to with an antibiotic that has to be digested uh, or injected. So I think it, this is sort of hinting at the same thing, that these antivirulence compounds might not be 
digestible or injectable, but maybe they can be used as as biocides in some in some way. Yeah, sure. Um, I think they they speculated on the meropenem and furanon combination, uh, and they said that they, they, there was like a efflux pump uh, mutation uh, in the antibiotic resistance strain for uh, meropren uh, resistance. And what they feared was that um, that may be conferred also for a non-resistance, which would explain why they had to use such high uh, concentration as for non, since this pump could like, uh, it's targeting the, the chrome sensing system, right? So the pump could uh, yeah, inhibit sure. this attack. And maybe maybe it means that there are other combinations that could be very, much more effective, since maybe some of these are not very good if they confer resistance to each other. So maybe there are other antiviral factors. Yeah, and I think I, I think the the efflux pump is the, the efflux pump are probably one of these really clear examples of a risk group of proteins or genes. Uh, because they would actually be able to export more than one type of compound in many cases. So maybe maybe that is actually a risk from a co-resistance uh, or co-selection perspective. Thanks everyone for a great discussion. It's time to wrap up. Uh, so thank you, Anna. Thank you. And thank you, Mabuma. Thank you. Thank you, Emil. Thank you. Thank you, Sebastian. Thank you. And thank you, Marcus. Thank you very much. We also, of course, uh, thank uh, Fanny Bailund very much for being part of the podcast uh, today. It's been very great having you all on, and I hope you s- hope to see you all again next month. So this pod is hosted by the Bengtsson Palma Lab at the University of Gothenburg. If you have any questions or comments about the content of the pod, please send us a message on Twitter at Bengtsson Palma as one single word, or send an email to podcast at microbiology.se. If you like what you're hearing, please uh, hand in five-star reviews in, for example, the Apple Podcast Store. It helps other people finding the show as well. Thank you for listening.